If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where expert historians respond to popular online search queries and questions that you've submitted via our social media channels. Today, we'll be tackling one of the most notorious episodes of Scottish history. As Sir Tom Devine, author of The Scottish Clearances, A History of the Dispossessed, answers your questions on the Highland Clearances. So thank you so much for joining uh, me as our expert on the Highland Clearances and thanks to everybody who submitted questions. So I'm going to start us off on a really, really broad introductory question, which is one of the biggest things people search for online, which is just simply, what were the Highland Clearances? The Highland Clearances um, were were the, the removal of peasant communities, families, sometimes individuals from land often done by a process of coercion, but not always. Um, the, the actual experience endured from about the middle decades of the 18th century, and the last major evictions of people, uh, especially in the Western Highlands and Islands, um, occurred in the 1850s. So really, it's a, almost a 100-year experience of what some people regard as the destruction of an ancient peasant society. Uh, as the Highlands move from, uh, in a sense, tribalism, or what you might identify as clanship, to capitalism over just a couple of generations. The whole process was a traumatic one for many of the people. 
Okay, so it's it's a kind of it's a broad span of time that we're looking at here rather than one specific incident, as you say. So one of the other things that people search for online about this is where do the Scottish Highlands start? So basically, what geographical area are we looking at when we're talking about this? We're talking about anything uh, north and west of the Highland Line on the mainland. And as far as um, the islands are concerned, all the inner and outer Hebrides, um, as far south as the island of Arran in the southwest, um, the southwest coast. The, um, the Highland Line uh, basically runs from just above Glasgow uh, in the west and just above Dundee uh, in the east. Uh, and the concentration of the Highland Massif, that is the, the great mountains, like the Cairngorms, are, are in the centre of that area. And then many of the population, especially at the beginning of the clearances, tend to be found on the coastlands or in the inner strats, we call them strats, and English valleys. There's also some arable land in the islands, uh, both the inner islands, the, Hebr- the inner Hebrides, and the outer Hebrides, where you sometimes get localised concentrations of population. So before we go any further, actually, I want to put quite an insightful question to you from um, Johnny H on Facebook, because I know that this is something that you're an expert in. So he asks, weren't there also lowland clearances? So let's just tackle that before we go any further. Okay, it's a very good question, Johnny. Um, Because actually, uh, my last major book, um, research-based book, It's called The Scottish Clearances. It was published in 2018 by Penguin Publishers. And it it takes the title The Scottish Clearances because the aim of the book, I mean, it's quite pioneering, some might even say provocative, is to demonstrate that the process of eviction was Scotland-wide. It was pan-Scotland. It was not restricted to the areas traditionally regarded as the zones of clearance. And ironically enough, the um, southern uplands bordering England, that's where eviction started long before it occurred in the Highlands. It started in those areas of sheep and cattle um, on the other side of the English-Scottish border in the later 17th century, uh, basically almost a century before the first major evictions in the Highlands. So you can understand that kind of concept has caused a considerable stir in Scotland. Yeah, it's important to say, isn't it, I think at this point, that we asked people for questions about the Highland clearances, and that's how most people think of it, but it's quite often now spoken about as the Scottish clearances, isn't it? Um, So I'm going to ask you about the causes and the consequences of the clearances in a minute, but before we do that, can you give us a sense of what the Highlands and... um, other aspects of Scottish culture were like before the clearances. So we've got a question from um, Derek Sotheby who asks, what was the social, political and economic interplay between clan members, clan chiefs and the nobility? Thank you for that, Derek. The uh, Highland Society until the early 18th century, some might even say the mid-18th century, was a clan-based or tribal society. So the um, the elites were the, the owners of land, the clan chiefs and the clan gentry. Um, and they, or at least the belief was, wasn't always historically accurate, that these people, that these um, individuals, individual families, 
had a long-term relationship with the people going back. In other words, there was a blood relationship. To a very significant extent, this was myth. But the myth was believed in in an ingrained way, and that gave a sense that the clan, because literally in English, the word clan, C-L-A-N-N, means children or family. So this was a very important connection in a military sense, that the leaders were kindred of the followers, and the followers were kindred of the, um, the, the leading gentry. The origins of clanship are actually relatively recent. They only occurred in the medieval period. Because the monarchy could not uh, ensure order in some parts of the northwest and the islands, local groups came together, and you, you find, therefore, the cementing of a sense of um, reciprocity, if you will. So in return for protection from great men and their families, the ordinary people, the ordinary clansmen and clanswomen would provide um, would provide rental, sometimes in kind, sometimes in money, but also rental and blood. In other words, the fact that the chief had a right to call out his people, his clansmen, within the bounds of the clan uh, for military service. Uh, so so the, the essence of clanship, which was quite different from the rest of Scotland by the early to mid-18th century, was that it was still a society which was geared to war, geared to military defence and military offence. One final thing to however point out, in no way was it an inert social system. It was changing all the time. And we know what for about a century before the um, the great defeat of the Jacobite army of Prince Charles Edward Stuart at Culloden in 1746, often seen as a watershed, that clanship was already slowly dying. And that's, that explains why very soon after the 1740s, the whole system really collapsed um, and chiefs essentially evolved very rapidly away from being patriarchs of their people into capitalist landowners who were determined to exact profit from their estates and become, if you will, just ordinary country gentlemen in the same way as their lowland counterparts and those in England. So we've got a few questions now about some of the causes of the clearances. So KB the Ginger asks on Instagram, a great name there, um, were the clearances in part a response to the Jacobite Rebellion? The Jacobite Rebellion, of course, ended in 1746, after that, you know, because the army of Charles Edward Stuart had come damn close, very close to success, so the, the, the Westminster government determined this would never happen again. And so they used various techniques of both punishment and, quote marks, pacification. So you could say, therefore, by the 1750s, 1760s, the old, um, the old unruly, unruly condition of the Highlands some, some might even say a lawless condition of the Highlands, had vanished. And instead of that, stability reigned everywhere. That ensured that clanship collapsed because the whole raison d'etre of, of traditional clanship was so that people and leaders could come together in self-protection against external foes. That was no longer necessary because the instrument of straight state control of military authority in the Highlands was everywhere. And so that reason for being of clanship disintegrated. And at the same time as that occurred, as that occurred, that is stability, 
um, and undermining of the reason for clanship. At the same time as that happened, a lot of other factors, economic, cultural, political, came together in the later 18th century to accelerate the intensification of clearance. Well, on that note, we've got a pretty huge question, which I'm sure that historians have spent a lot of time debating, next from Claire XX on Instagram, who asks, why did the Scottish clearances happen? Right, so first of all, you to go back to that, the answer to the last question, by the mid-18th century, you have stability. And so the landowner, formerly clan chief, could use his or her property as an asset, as a capital asset. These individuals, these elites are having increasing difficulty keeping up with the genteel tastes um, and customs of their counterparts south of the Highland Line because, of course, the um, uh, Highland uh, society is, is, you know, develops in a very rugged part of Britain where rentals are very low. So there's a tremendous pressure on these landowners, former clan chiefs, to increase returns from their estates. And one of the best ways to do that, given the nature of the terrain, is to set down large areas of their properties for sheep farming and for cattle ranching. It's been reckoned that they could increase the return from their lands by as many much as 400 to 500% if they lease land in that way um, to uh, incoming farmers from, from the south. And of course, at the same time as that, as that is, is going on, they have to consider the ways in which the land, or the land holdings of the peasantry, former clansmen, should be treated. And they need access to the low country. They need access to the, the plain, if you like, the eastern coast plain um, in the highlands in order to winter the flocks. Because although they're quite a tough breed, um, Cheviots and Lintons is the type of breed used. Even though they are in that condition, they still need access to the lower country, the lower ground. And that is exactly where the settlements of the people exist. So that's one factor in clearance. The other factor is there's two phases to the process of clearance. Phase one is from about the 1750s to about 1815, the end of the Napoleonic Wars. I'll say something about that before I go on very briefly to phase two. And that is that this, it's a myth to say that in the later 18th century, the landowner wanted rid of his people. In fact, what most landers, landowners wanted was the creation of a dual economy uh, from which they could gain as much as possible in terms of rental. So internally on their estates, they wanted land laid down to sheep primarily, but also cattle. But then they moved people to the coastlands to try and encourage them to take up fishing or what was called kelp manufacture. Kelp is the burning of seaweed for the production of alkali, which was much used in the Industrial Revolution chemical industries of, of that particular period. So this is not a period up to 1815 of expulsion. It's, a peer, it's, a, it's, it's actually a process of moving people into different areas and one sees also the fact that the population is increasing during that time. So eviction, meaning expulsion from the Highlands, is not on that at that particular period. So the people that were being moved, what had they been using that land for before? What had they been doing on the land? They were only cultivators. The vast majority 
had no experience of these what we call by-employments, that is, employments related uh, to land. Uh, very few communities had fishing experience. Kelping was actually a completely new type of, um, of uh, resource gathering. And, of course, land was also given in this period um, when, uh, when uh, former clansmen with the reputation you know, for courage and for violence were recruited into the, um, the, the, the regiments of the British Army. And in return for creating these regiments, um, landowners from their own territories could actually also achieve commissions for their own people and also bounties from the states. So military employment was one of the linked connections to land. That's the important point. The people still heard, held fragments of land they were not expelled at this time. And then you have other activities such as illicit whiskey making, seasonal migration to the south. But the process up to 1815, at least, up to the early 1820s indeed, was one where the small holding of the peasantry was shaved to a minimum in order to encourage the family to engage in these other profitable pursuits. So, the, 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 the population, far from being expelled in this period, is regarded by landowners as a precious resource. That changes dramatically after the end of the wars with France, um, and especially, of course, in the period 1815 to the 1820s. By the time we get into the 1820s, 1830s, and especially during the Great Famine, so-called, of the potato famine of the 1840s, 1850s, the, the strategy of landowners is not simply moving people, but getting rid of them or trying to get rid of them because they are now a redundant population. They are no longer required for the labour-intensive by-employments of the pre-1815 era, era. And that's why some of the most draconian clearances or evictions occur in the 1820s, 1830s but especially in the 1850s. Um, one um, British administrator uh, in the Highlands in the late 1840s, 1850s, the lugubriously named Sir Edward Pine Coffin, he'd experienced famine in Ireland and also famine in India. And he's, he, 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 he wrote to his masters in Whitehall that the intensity of clearance between 1847, 1848 and 1855 was such that he feared for the survival of the society. It's the first ever time in a historical text or document I've seen the word extermination used, not by killing the people, but by really forcing them off the land, not this time for um, movement to coastlands or to other areas, but actually outside the estate entirely. So one of the biggest questions that people search for online is who was responsible for the Highland clearances? What would your answer to that be? Would it be those landowners that we've discussed? Yes, the landowners, of course, were the agents, but very rarely did they become directly involved in the process. Um, the, um, the, official, the estate officials in Scotland at that time were, were known as factors, sometimes estate chamberlains. Um, often they were Highlanders themselves, um, often um, um, uh, Lowlanders who had been trained in accounting um, and uh, management of estates, etc. So they were the ones who were actually on the ground responsible for it. But the other thing we must bear in mind, because we've been talking about individuals so far, 
Also a very powerful element was economic and social forces. The economic and social forces were simply this. This was the period of Scottish and English industrialisation. And so there was a huge market opening up for fish, for highland grain, um, for kelp, um, and uh, slate even for building, um, and a range of other activities, timber, for example. And so at the same time as landowners required more rental, here was this catalytic factor operating at the same time that the opportunities in the marketplace for selling highland produce was greater. And then finally, um, the other thing which is often forgotten, Highland population was rising rapidly in the later 18th century, even to a greater extent than it was elsewhere in Britain, where, of course, population growth was also occurring. So here we have a situation, almost a Malthusian situation, after Thomas Malthus, that a population starting to rise rapidly when people have less access to land, which was, of course, the case during the clearance, the clearance period. Um, and at the same time, this is an environment which doesn't really have the capability for generate, generating industrialization. If there had been industrialization in the Highlands, as it happened in the Lowlands, the people would have been able to, be in a, able to have been absorbed in wage-earning wage alternatives. Industrialization. Um, the inability of the highlands to have alternatives to agriculture or to land-based activity spelt doom uh, for the people. They really eventually would have to move either voluntarily or by some form of coercion. So next we've got a really intriguing question from Mark James who asks, why do some people blame the English for the highland clearances? Is that something you've come across? Well, it's, I wouldn't come across it in, in serious historical work or anything like that, but you also see it in popular culture. I mean, there's a tradition in Scotland of blaming the English for everything. The point I would make is this. Um, there was indeed, during the early 19th century, a significant inflow of um, English landowners into the north of Scotland. They were interested in, in game, you know, deer hunting, uh, and and other recreational activities. Because in that period, the traditional Highland class uh, were really facing a series of considerable um, economic crises as a consequence of the downswing in the old employments of the late 18th and early, early 19th century. Um, but there's no evidence at all that these, were any, these English landowners were in any sense more active in clearance than their Scottish counterparts. It was simply, if you like, it was a pursuit, almost regarded as a necessary part of managing an estate properly. It didn't really matter whether you're from England or from Scotland. And some of the, you know, the, the worst clearances in the Western Highlands and Islands, perhaps the, the classic example is that of the Dukes of Sutherland, occurred on the estates of former clan chiefs. What had happened was this, almost cultural, political, social and economic revolution in the mindset of the landed elite, the former clan, clan families, the elite clan families uh, that um, helped to produce this. In no way would I see any ethnic factor between England and Scotland or English landowners and Scottish landowners as of any real, any real consequence. <laughs> 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's clear evidence there that um, Highlanders who had been evicted or encouraged to to move uh, during the period of compulsory emigration uh, were beginning to act in the same way towards the Aboriginal population as they had been treated in the Highlands. It's one of the saddest aspects of the story of the Scottish and Highland, Highland diaspora. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Actually, next I'm going to throw you two questions together. So from Hugh um, Berkmeyer asks, was there much resistance to the clearances and what form did it take? Leela Les also asks, did the clans rebel at all? Um, it's, a, it's an excellent question because given the fact that this was a former warrior society, one would have anticipated great resistance to this process, but it didn't happen. That's not to say that there wasn't resistance, but in terms of my own research, uh, both on Highland, the Highlands, Lowlands and the Borders, um, uh, 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 outright resistance, illegal resistance, if you like, was, um, was relatively, relatively rare. Did occur, but it was not commonplace. So why? A number of reasons. One of the, one of the factors that's often been suggested is that the people, especially in the Highlands, were simply dis- disorientated, um, not angered, disorientated by this metamorphosis, this transformation in, in the uh, the role and attitudes of their former patriarchs, you know, the, the, the clan elites. Uh, there is a, an untrans- a relatively untranslatable term in traditional um, clanship, a traditional Gaelic society. It's the word in Gaelic, duchas, D-U-A-T-H-A-S. And essentially it means that in return for, um, uh, if you like, blood rental, in return for military support, people have the right and the custom to be protected on their lands 
by the elites in terms of their leadership. So you can understand that clearance was the most grave violation of this traditional belief. And I think the people were simply bewildered for at least a period. Uh, not all of them, because as I've said, there were attempts at, at resistance. The other problem, of course, was that this was all legal. There was a, a, a growing um, acceptance that the evictions were going to proceed whether the people liked it or not, because law and government and the police and the military were on the side. So there was a sense that it was pointless to some extent to resist because it would only mean the men folk of the society and sometimes women as well because they were often to the fore in terms of those particular acts of resistance that they would simply be jailed and that would of course um, cause great difficulty in terms of subsistence uh, to the to the uh, families of those of those uh, prisoners. Uh, the final thing I would suggest is this. During the first half of the 19th century, a religious revolution swept through the highlands, a force of evangelical religion. Some people have argued it was because the people were in such crisis. They were, they were being battered, not only by eviction and clearance, but also by, because of the growing economic difficulties after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and not least eventually by the failure of their subsistence potato crop in the late 1840s, 1850s, exactly at the same time as the Irish famine. Uh, so th this, um, th this religious revolution tended, in the view of some scholars at least, to produce a submissive, a submissive population. It was wrong, in other words, said um, one minister, to prevent suffering by sinning. In other words, to prevent the uh, experience of eviction by taking the law into your own hands to resist that was wrong and that all all would be all would be dealt with mercifully and justly in good time in God's eternity so this could have been another variable um ex explaining the relative the relative silence uh, that occurred uh, at that time so let's talk for a minute about the people that were displaced so MHFQ and Scarjomo on Instagram both asked about this, um, asked what were the key areas that displaced people moved to and did many Highlanders emigrate? If so, where to? Yes, the, the, um, to go back to one of, one of the answers I gave earlier, um, first of all, when the landowning classes are determined to retain the population as a labour force for these employments that I described earlier, the great movement is towards the coast, especially the mainland coast from Ardnamurchan to Cape Wrath. And the internal areas, the interior areas, then set down for sheep farming, large-scale sheep farming. I mean, really huge sheep, sheep, sheep ranches and also cattle ranching. Um, but, but when that, uh, when the desire to retain the population starts to end in a significant way, then you find the people... Um, being crowded in, uh, that's a term that was used at the period, crowded in from their evicted uh, areas into other areas where the people were being allowed to maintain themselves. And of course, that encouraged further destitution. Then you get movement, especially to the lowland towns, from the southern and eastern and central fringes of the highlands, 
and in especially large scale. Because don't forget, just south of the Highland Line at this period, Scotland is experiencing the fastest industrial revolution of any country of its size in either Western or Central Europe. So there are employment opportunities becoming available, especially in the southern and eastern areas, just outside the, the Highland the Highland region. And then, of course, as your questioner suggested, beginning in the late 18th century, on a relatively small scale, accelerating by the 1820s, and then becoming massive by the 1830s, 1840s, there were mass emigrations to North America to begin with, Canada first, then eventually um, the the USA, um, and uh, also by the time we get to the 1830s, 1840s, Australia uh, too. If you take the area from Arnhem Point in the southwest highlands to the top, the north, Cape Wrath, and the the the, the, the end of the the coastline up there, we find that between the census of eighteen forty one and the census of eighteen sixty one, that zone left lost rather over a third of its population. Sometimes the the, the removal was voluntary. But sometimes also landowners practiced what became known as compulsory emigration. They gave the people the the, the bleak choice, either simple, straightforward removal and eviction, and they could find their their own way, or um, because they specifically wanted to get rid of them at this time. They didn't want them to linger around um, even after eviction notices had been served. Or the promise of um, support uh, to to sail across the Atlantic or to Australia. Um, and they would have subsistence, of course, while en route, and the, 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 the cost of the the cost of the transportation would would be would be covered. Um, and again, if you look at a relatively short period between the early 1850s and the early 1860s, around about a decade, especially in the West and the Western Islands, we're talking about maybe 25,000 people removed, um, either by charitable agencies or by, um, or by landlord decision and landlord support. And interestingly enough, what's mixed into that story is rampant racism. The fact is that uh, people are arguing in the southern newspapers, how did it come about that one part of our modernised uh, Great Britain um, you know, the, 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 the industrial society par excellence, the world's most powerful economy. Why is it in, in one area uh, there is this degree of poverty and even crisis and famine? And the conclusion they increasingly came up with that the people were inadequate. They were racially inadequate. The Celt, like the Irish Celt, didn't have the capacity for self-help and enterprise. And one, gov- one very influential government official Sir Charles Trevelyan, who'd also been active during the Irish famine crisis, um, he tried to engineer a great programme of the expulsion of 45,000 gales, that is Highlanders, and the the, the places which had been vacated would then be um, peopled by incoming Germans who, of the Teutonic race, because as he put it, they were much more capable of industriousness and enterprise than the um, the uh, the racially inadequate Celtic population. It was an extraordinary situation 
uh, to happen because it meant also that if there was a racist dimension to clearance, which increasingly there was, that made the people, that ensured the people would be, tra- would be treated in a much harsher way because they were regarded as, if not subhuman, yet not in the same level as uh, people of the uh, of the um, the lowland or English race, or even in fact the the, the Teutonic Germ- German race. So that's why in this period, eighteen thirties, forties, and fifties, we we see some of the most draconian uh, and uh, acts of clearance, uh, where the people were treated very badly indeed. It was a it was a kind. You could argue that it was a kind of form of ethnic cleansing. The target, therefore, was not simply because they were surplus economically. It was also because by this period, the the conventional wisdom among Lowland and uh, British commentators generally is that they were racially inadequate and had to be replaced. So we've got a few more questions now about the, the consequences of the clearances. So one of the things that people search for is how did the clearances end? That might be quite hard to define, I imagine. No, no, it's actually very easy to, to define because um, if you take Scotland as a whole, um, removals, evictions and the consolidation of um, former types of landholding in the lowlands and the borders, they, that was over by about the 1820s, 1830s. The Highland experience endured for longer. And as I've said, the worst period in terms of you know, the bitter acceptance of what was going on occurred between the late 1840s and early 1850s during the failure of the potatoes, the dreaded blight which had affected Ireland. And we can actually date it very precisely because after 1856, there's very little in the way of what I would call mass mass eviction, group eviction, you know, family, significant family eviction. Instead of that, it's a process almost of winkling out individual households, for example, if they're not paying rental. Uh, on time and and the rest. And then what happens, very interestingly enough, 20 or 30 years later, after the clearances, not during them, there is a huge crofting agitation against, if you like, both the past and the condition they now find themselves in. And as a result of that so-called crofters' war, the government intervenes, creates a, a royal commission to find out what's going on in this part of Britain, and after that, there is passed the Crofters Holding Act in 1886, which, among other things, gives the people of the Highlands, especially the small crofting population, security of tenure. So after that, clearance on any extensive scale is legally impossible. So the de facto, it's more or less coming to an end in the mid-1850s, de jure from the 1880s onwards. Nick Liz Sanders asks... Um, did the clearances lead to a loss of languages or dialects? And I would perhaps just broaden that out a bit to did it lead, lead to a loss of a Highland culture? It didn't, it didn't, it didn't uh, destroy Highland culture because there's a lot of poetry, some of it in fact, protest poetry. Um, there's a great uh, continuation of song and oral, oral tradition, um, so it doesn't smash it. But you see, at the same time as this was going on, um, it was becoming acceptable, even by many Gales, uh, that English had to be learned because it was the language of everywhere else in, in the UK and even, of course, in the British colonies. Um, so there began a kind of push to uh, instruct the, the young of the, of the society by the later 19th century in, 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 in English. Uh, 
But as far as the the clearances and effect it had, I would suggest that what it did in the medium to long term it was give the society a sense of deep-seated grievance, which also, of course, eventually helped to this great insurrection against landlordism in the 1870s and 1880s. But even then, the memory, because this, this makes it different from elsewhere in Scotland, the memory of eviction and clearance was deeply ingrained in the population and has been handed down from generation to generation. Clearance is still a, a live issue in parts of the Highlands and Islands. And, and it's almost become you know, a political term. People sometimes say, oh, there's a danger of a new Highland or Scottish clearance. If there's, for example, this was mentioned often during deindustrialization in Scotland in the 1970s and 1980s of, of last century. Um, uh, so the memory of clearance has lived on. But this is one of the big questions which I trans try to answer in my book. I spend some time on it, actually. And that is, if, if clearance was a Scottish experience rather than simply a Highland experience, why has it been forgotten? Why is there no folk memory of dispossession in lowland and border society, but a continuation of that sense of memory etched to this day in Highland culture? It's the sort of question I like, like to ask my undergraduates in the past, um, and it's not an easy one to answer. I might um, return to the question of legacy in a minute. Just one more that I wanted to ask before that final question. So one of the th biggest things that people search for is how many people died in the clearances, which I guess is not going to be easy to quantify. And similarly, Hannah Laura on Instagram asks, how significantly was the population of the Highlands reduced? So I, I wonder if you could just answer those two together, perhaps. Okay, in, in the first instance, um, you know, the, 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 there's, there's no significant evidence of what you may call a clear increase in mortality. Um, even during the period when the entire population of the Western Highlands Islands was threatened by the potato failure. One does not see any clear evidence. There's obviously a, a degree of increase in mortality, but it's very limited and it's ephemeral. It's nothing like the Irish situation, where in Ireland a million died and over two million people emigrated, leaving the population almost halved in two as a consequence of that particular crisis. There's also evidence, of course, that those in the emigrant ships, you begin to see a clear indication of mortality, not least on long voyages to Australia and through smallpox and other common ailments of that time. But it doesn't in any way, the clearance experience doesn't in any way leave the dent in population through death. Where it leaves a dent in population is through the actual act of eviction and through the fact that, at the end of the day, this society could not support a very large increase in population because of its limited areas of arable land, its lack of raw materials and uh, minerals such as coal, and its failure to industrialise because of competition from the lowlands. So if you have a 50% increase or 60% increase in population, as you did have in some parts of the highlands, in the first half of the 19th century. It's either destitution or leave. 
and uh, and and that was the unhappy uh, saga that was was going on. Uh, my argument would be that eviction aggravated that process of an imbalance between resources and population, but fundamentally it did not cause it. If there had been no clearances, many of the population would still have had to leave because by the later part of the century, the 19th century, to live in that kind, those kind of destitute conditions was becoming increasingly intolerable and they saw, they saw greater opportunity elsewhere. I mean, if you move to Canada, for example, you're still able to um, to take a plot of land or even greater than a plot of land. And one of the great advantages of going to, going to Canada or the USA was there were no landowners. Uh, if you went to Canada, you became your own proprietor, even if it was a very small area. And that also was an interesting uh, incentive. And what you therefore also see, sadly, in some parts of the Highland diaspora, uh, and we see it especially in Australia in relation to Aboriginal people. There's clear evidence there that um, Highlanders who had been evicted or encouraged to, to move um, uh, during the period of compulsory emigration uh, were beginning to act in the same way towards the Aboriginal population as they had been treated in the Highlands. It's one of the saddest aspects of the story of the Scottish and Highland, Highland diaspora. So our final question just returns uh, briefly to something you were talking about a moment ago, which is from Claire B. XX on Instagram, who asks, what was the lasting legacy of the clearances? I think there were two lasting legacies. The first I've already described, that is the memory of clearance, um, the sense of injustice, the fact that the gale uh, had been badly treated in relation to other parts of Scotland or indeed, indeed Britain. So that that uh, that was firmly ingrained ingrained by the end of the nineteenth century, uh, and and it's endured. That's not to say modern uh, modern Highlanders are up in arms about clearance um, of the past. It is to say that it's given almost a sense of community, um, a sense of that history, which is very strongly developed in them. Um, is the the other the other area, of course, is the impact over the long term. It's made on Scottish lowland society. You recall saying that, at least among some elites, the middle decades of the 19th century, uh, there was a sense of almost racialized contempt for the Gael because they seemed incapable of developing a society which would support them. They had to be supported through charity and through government aid during the famine crisis. Uh, but that changed by the late 19th century and certainly had changed by the 20th century. You could say that Highland, the Highlands are the Lowlanders. I mean, we talk about the white man's burden, but probably the Highlands are the Lowlanders' burden. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a sense of residual guilt about what happened north and west of the Highland line in that, in that period of the late 18th and 19th, 19th centuries. And, and, and that gives um, most Scots um, a, a sense that they owe Highland society for what had, what had occurred in the past. And, and therefore that helps to explain some of the, the redevelopment and development policies uh, of the Scottish government uh, in, in, that part of, um, in that part of the country. I, I think it's a fairly deep-seated thing. 
and and and, and especially since be, from about the 1960s onwards, several best-selling books on the clearances appeared. The most notable one was by John Preble, The Highland Clearances. And that, that was published in the 1960s, just at the time when Scottish nationalism was coming to the fore, um, late 60s, early 70s. And, and I would argue that um, that uh, coincidence between deepening knowledge of the clearances in lowland society and the rise of nationalism, there is a kind of link because the clearances be- began to be popularised almost um, uh, as an indication of the way Scotland, Scotland itself, not Highland Scotland, uh, was being hard done by during the era of industrialization, which reached, of course, a peak during the Thatcherite years. That was Sir Tom Devine. His book, The Scottish Clearances, A History of the Dispossessed, is out now published by Alan Lane. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. When Fern Riddell will be speaking about sexual culture through history. Music